Hello, and welcome to Immunity, your immunology podcast. We're your hosts. I'm Bianca Reddenball. And I'm Lara Dungan. And this is the podcast where we tell you all about the most exciting research going on in the world of immunology. So grab a cup of tea, sit down and relax, and we'll fill you in. We're here to talk about what research is being done, what new treatments we should be watching out for, and what's happening in the immunology labs and clinics all around the world. If you want to get in contact with us, you can email us at immunoteapodcast at gmail.com. That's immunotea spelled I-M-M-U-N-O-T-E-A podcast at gmail.com. Or you can tweet us at immunotea. Don't forget that's T-E-A. We're really excited about our guest this month. Dr. Dara Duffy completed his PhD in immunology in the University of Manchester in 2003. He stayed on in Manchester until 2007, when he moved to Paris to work in the Pierre and Marie Curie University until he moved to the Institut Pasteur in 2011. Dara is now the Director of Research at the Institut Pasteur and leads the Translational Immunology Lab at this institute in Paris, where he's also co-coordinator of the LabEx Milieu Anterior Consortium. The overall goal of his research is to better understand the fundamental mechanisms behind inter-individual differences in immune responses and apply these discoveries to relevant clinical questions. Dara, you are very welcome to the show today. How are you? I'm very good. Thanks, Lara. And thanks, Fianca, for the invitation. Thank you so much for joining us. Obviously, your bio is extremely impressive, so it's hard to know where to start. Now, I know you do have a specific interest in cytokine biology, so we might start there. And I know even more specifically, type 1 interferons in response to viral infections. Can you give us a bit of a flavor, maybe, just of what type 1 interferons are and the role they play in our immune system? Yeah, sure. So um, as you mentioned, we've really been interested in type 1 interference for quite a few years now. Um, they're very interesting cytokine because really sort of the major antiviral immune response. So really critical for responding to to viral infection, but at the same time also implicated in many different autoimmune conditions and autoinflammation. So really important in many different uh, physiological settings. And actually it was the first cytokine ever identified and described back in the 1950s by uh, Isaacs and Lindemann. They gave it this term of interferon because they were studying the, the concept of viral interference. And then they identified this soluble factor that was inhibiting cells from getting infected with viruses. That's really cool to hear it was the first cytokine discovered. So you've done a lot of work on the role these cytokines play in COVID. Can you talk to us a little bit about that? Yeah, sure. So, um, Obviously, as a major antiviral immune mediator, uh, we hypothesized pretty early on in the, in the pandemic when the first infectious cases were, were arriving in Paris that there was, could be a critical role for interferon in, in the immune response to COVID. We'd heard from the, the reports coming out of China early on that there was really a high level of variability in the clinical responses. So we hypothesized that it could be differences in immune responses, in particular in the, in the type 1 interferon response, because it's so important in, in, in viral immunity. So uh, together with different clinical teams here in Paris, uh, notably led by Benjamin Terrier, uh, we established an initial cohort to, to study the role of interferon in this and saw pretty early on that really in, in critical c- clinical cases, patients had really a reduced type 1 interferon response in the, in the blood. And that was at the level of the protein which is notoriously hard to, to measure, but we set up some techniques a number of years back to be able to quantify the, the protein. But also at the, the functional level, the gene transcript level, we saw really early on the interferon levels were different in the patients that were ended up with that really critical severe disease that, that we know all too well. 
Some of your research focuses also on the inborn errors of type 1 interference and indeed antibodies against these cytokines in COVID. Could you discuss maybe the relevance of these immune problems in this disease and other diseases? So I mentioned there how we showed early on that interferon was really important in COVID. And the next big question that came from that was, well, why? Why do, why do some patients have a, an apparent defect in their, their type 1 interferon response? So the major answer to that that has come, it was really work led by the COVID Human Genetics Consortium led by Jean-Laurent Casanova. And they initially hypothesized that this idea of inborn errors in immunity could be behind some of the severe cases. So this is the idea that you have mutations or genetic perturbations in key immune pathways that are in such important immune pathways that if that response is not functional, it puts you at risk for various diseases. So these had mainly been studied previously in the context of autoimmunity um, because it could, outside of the context of infection or a global pandemic, where you could see these benevolent was really in these rare cases of, of autoimmunity. But it turned out that these mutations, which are relatively low frequency, were put in individuals who had them at really high risk of severe disease. And in parallel to that was a really striking observation that a significant proportion of critical patients had autoantibodies against type 1 interferons, particularly interferon alphas. So there's a number of, of interferons and a number of type 1 interferons, but really sort of the major one is interferon alpha. And, and this work, they showed that up to 10% in some cohorts of, of critical patients had autoantibodies against this really key cytokine and it was blocking the immune response that was um, you know protecting these people from the from the viruses so that was really a really important finding in COVID it really increases with age as well we don't really understand yet what's causing it but really over the ages of 65 70 it really dramatically increases um, and that's was, was explaining a large part of the the age association with severe COVID. And it's fascinating knowing that, but is there something you can do to target that? Is there a plasma exchange or a way to treat these patients? Yeah, it's a great question. So I think the first thing that could be done is really to screen for individuals at high risk, um, especially as we know it, these autoantibodies increase over the ages of 70. And we know that nursing home residents were particularly at risk for COVID. This would be a relatively easy screening tool to do and, and identify who might be at higher risk. And then the second could be, you know, if someone with these autoantibodies does get infected with COVID, you can give interferon beta, which is another type one interferon. And, and actually some clinical studies demonstrated this, some sort of proof of concepts in the sort of second or third waves of COVID when we had this information to hand. The challenge there is always the timing, but if it's in an at-risk population, such as a nursing home or something like that, and where you already do the screening for the autoantibodies, then you can be ready to, to, to treat those people with interferon beta where you know, it does exactly the same kind of signaling uh, and it's used in the treatment of autoimmune diseases like multiple sclerosis. Can I ask you, Dara, do these antibodies occur in other viral diseases, do we know? So it's not that they um, not actually occur in COVID. They're, they seem to be pre-existing to COVID. So it's kind of um, a natural autoimmune reaction, if, if, if that's a term I'm allowed to use. Um, they do put you at risk for other viral infections. And even, uh, again, this is a lot of this works from John Laurent Casanova's lab in, in vaccination with yellow fever vaccination, which is a a live virus, which is used as a vaccine. If you have these autoantibodies, you can be at risk of uh, secondary infection with, with yellow fever vaccine. So, so we're really only beginning to appreciate the, the impact in terms of infection of these autoantibodies. They've, they've been well known in certain autoimmune diseases like lupus or Sjorgen's syndrome, where they have been reported before. 
but it was really the pandemic that, that brought home the, the importance of these at the sort of public health level, the population level. And as we mentioned at the start, your research is extremely varied. Another area of exciting work you do is in the realm of JAK inhibitors. Maybe you could talk to us a little bit about what these are and maybe what they're used to treat. Sure. So, so JAK is for Janus kinase, um, which is one of the major downstream signaling molecules after the interferon receptor. And it leads to activation of the STAP signaling pathway, which is one of the sort of major signaling pathways of immune cells. So, so cytokines nearly all mediate their effector response to some kind of JAK stat signaling pathway. And then there's three different JAK molecules and then various stats. So they all sort of combine together to give you the different flavors of immune responses. So JAK inhibitors were developed to, to really inhibit this pathway because of their implication in many different autoimmune and, and autoinflammatory conditions. So things like uh, arthritis or psoriasis um, were the original targets for, for development of these therapies. And, and, and they work pretty well. Obviously, there's variability within patient populations and within disease, but in things like dermatomitis, they, they work pretty well. And, and now there's a lot of hope that they can be sort of repositioned or retargeted for other diseases, other more rare kinds of autoinflammation or even some of the type 1 interferonopathy diseases where you have this overactivation of an immune response. They're, they're pretty powerful molecules. So as with any treatment, there are risk of side effects. And, and because, as we discussed, the interferon and other cytokines are really important in modulating protection to infection, that is the major uh, risk from that. But in terms of some of these conditions are really debilitating, you, you take that risk of, of having a, a you know slightly higher risk for, for infection. Okay, so as you say, infections are the main side effect with JAK inhibitors. Can we talk a little bit about what makes these drugs better than the alternatives in certain diseases? Yeah, so even though they, I mean, every, every drug comes with the risk of a side effect, um, the risk with some of these JAK inhibitors is, is a bit lower than some of the other more broad-acting immunotherapy drugs like steroids. Um, so corticosteroids are really a blunt inhibitor of global immune responses. And, and, and people often eventually become resistant to steroids because you're just continually inhibiting the immune response. Eventually, it'll, it'll find a way around that. So at least with JAK inhibitors, you're a bit more selective. You're, you're targeting the JAK stat signaling pathway, so you're not blunting all of the cytokines. And, and there's a lot of, I'd say, research going into targeting specific JAK signaling pathways. So the first inhibitor was targeting JAK3, and that's really sort of a type 2 immune response. So you can be a bit more selective with these. And, and I think the newer th therapies are going to get even more selective in that way. So, so that's really the advantage. It's more precision immunology, if you like, as opposed to the old way of just inhibiting everything with steroids. We've discussed on the podcast before about how we can't believe that steroids are still used. Right. <laughs> we, and, and they are. It's so universally used in everything. But but I just, we still can't get our heads around how they're still so omnipresent. I, com I completely agree. And we, and we still don't fully appreciate how they're working. You know, we we think they, we have, we have a project in, in COVID to try and understand how they're working in COVID because it's assumed they inhibit IL-6 and TNF. But in some of our experiments, we actually see not necessarily the opposite, but almost counterintuitively, they, they induce stronger induced immune responses in, in certain effects. So so I think even though you say they're so widely used, we don't fully appreciate the, the mechanisms of them. I think there's a lot of off-target effects of steroids that we don't fully appreciate. And is your work coming towards understanding a bit more what they are doing? So yeah, originally the idea was to try and predict which COVID patients would not respond to steroids because even they are frontline therapy in, for COVID, 
still 40, 50% of, of COVID patients won't respond. So that was the initial aim. And then sort of the pandemic was, it's such a, it was such a moving target from a research point of view that as population immunity arrived and through vaccination or infection, we just, we didn't have access to enough patients that weren't responding to steroids. And the patients that were being treated were much more complicated. They had multiple morbidities. They were getting multiple therapies. So we couldn't really address the, the same question. So we just sort of looked at the literature and said, well, we actually don't know what steroids are doing in COVID. We assume it's inhibiting that inflammatory response of IL-6 TNF. And it probably is, but you know, what's it doing to the T cells that we think are important in, in, in COVID infection? So, so that's where we're trying to focus now. So watch this space, eh? So Dara, one of the most exciting areas of your research is one we touched on in the introduction, the inter-individual differences between people's immune systems. Can you talk to us a bit about your Milieu Ontarier project? Yeah, um, with pleasure. So th this is really the sort of core focus of my research team. It's really to try and understand, you know, what are the causes of immune differences between everyone and, and what are the consequences? So we know that we all have different immune responses. We really appreciate it now because it's been sort of hammered home during the, the COVID pandemic. But we've been interested in this question for many, many years. So back in 2010, 2011, um, we initiated this consortium called Million Interior. So it was initially established by Matthew Albert, who was an immunologist, whose team I joined at Pasteur at the time, and Louis Quintana Mercy, who's a human population geneticist. And, and really to try and define first what are the boundaries of a healthy immune response, because often as immunologists, we're studying disease. We, we rarely study healthy immune responses. So first define what are the boundaries of that. And then if we can, we can identify outliers and we can see what of those outlier responses might be determined by genetics and what might be determined by environmental or lifestyle factors. So it's a big question, um, but we established a consortium to do this and, and it's now quite mature. It's been running, as I mentioned, since 2011. So what we really set up as the core way to address this was a cohort of 1000 healthy donors that we recruited uh, in a single clinical center in the West of France in Rennes. And so we stratified the donors by age and sex. So half men, half women from the ages of 20 to 70, and it's 200 per decade. So it's really, we have a hundred healthy elderly individuals versus, you know, a hundred of the younger age. And then we recruited them based on a, a subjective of the def definition of health is subjective, but we, you know, we sat down with a, a table of experts for a couple of days and, and really thrashed out what do we think means healthy and came up with a reasonable criteria, I think, which is, is now published. And we didn't want to over-select. So the example I like to give is smoking. I think we can all agree smoking is not healthy, but a significant proportion of the French population smoke. So we should include them. We can record it. Uh, and now we can study the effect of smoking on immune responses and we start to see some really interesting effects there and how smoking impacts immune responses. So from these thousand healthy donors, we collected sort of old biological samples that we could really think of and that were feasible. Um, so we, you know, quantified to characterize immune cells in the blood by photometry. We did a lot of whole blood stimulations. So th this is a, an aspect that my lab has really been leading in that to really study immune variability, you need to you need to stimulate the immune cells because they need to respond in different ways because immune cells would respond differently to a bacteria versus a virus versus a cytokine. So we included 40 of these different um, stimulations using whole blood as well, which we um, 
insist a bit on because it's more reproducible as opposed to the more conventional PBMC-based approach. And then from those, we can measure secreted cytokines. We can look at the, the, the cells at the transcriptomic level. Really, as, as the technologies evolve and, and we've seen this, we can measure more and more things. So things we... We can measure now that we didn't know 10 years ago we could we could measure but because we put a lot of effort into establishing the quality of the samples that's really made it possible um, and it's still you know we're still measuring new things from these samples that that we established over 10 years ago we extracted dna of course so we're looking at a big part is looking at genetics and that's why the the cohort was originally of French origin, so Western European, that was to minimize the genetic variability so that we had maximum power for that. Um, and then the other big component is the microbiome. So we have fecal samples and nasal swabs. So two different sites where we've been doing microbiome analysis. So a lot of data generation, a lot of data integration, and it's it's still ongoing and the project has sort of evolved into different areas. We've now through collaborations looking at healthy pediatric responses, healthy neonatal responses. Um, with Tilda at Trinity College in Dublin, uh, we're looking at the, the later stages of life, how people over the age of 75 and 80 who, who are showing really, you know, sort of those frail aspects of aging, how their immune responses are different. And then lastly, through the Pasteur International Network, we've been applying this to other populations around the world. So we started in Senegal, um, in a healthy African cohort, just a pilot study to, to really test feasibility. And now in Hong Kong, we're close to completing uh, the cohort of a thousand healthy Chinese population that we'll be able to cross compare back to our European population and really go down into the mechanism of how the genetics versus the environment could be determining immune differences between populations and within populations. This is a, a truly vast and incredibly exciting study, Dara. Before we delve too much into the results, on a practical level, you just mentioned earlier techniques to quantify cytokines. Do you have your own techniques in your lab? Do you think that these are comparable to other labs or hospitals around the world? Yeah, absolutely. So we run a lot of, for cytokines particularly, we run a lot of multiplex assays. We use Luminex, which is a pretty well-established technique, and that's used globally, and that, and that allows you to look at many cytokines in parallel. The other technique that we've been using a lot, in particular for cytokines like interferons, is digital ELISA. So it's the same kind of principle. You use a bead-based sandwich ELISA, but you isolate the, the, the bead into a single nanowell and then read the fluorescence of that bead. And, th and this really gives you more sensitive measures. And, and this can be really important in things like interferon alpha, which... Although it's very, very active molecule, the concentrations are often below the, the limits of detection of conventional ELISAs. So it really depends on the question. If we're stimulating, we probably, you know, the immune response um, with viruses or bacteria, you probably don't need these more sensitive techniques. But if you're looking directly into the the, the biological sample, and, and we've shown this also in the nasal swabs. So, you know, the nasal swabs that we've all been doing or have done, thankfully, it's a bit in the past now, uh, getting those COVID tests, you know, you're doing a scraping of the nasal epithelium, it goes into a liquid buffer. But using these digital lysers, they're sensitive enough that we can measure all the different cytokines just in, in that in that biosample that is just so easy to get. And it gives you just a different view of, of the immune response. It gives you a view into the mucosal immune response in, in humans, which we see is really completely different to what we see in the blood. So as as always with things in research, it opens more questions than answers, but um, it's it's a really powerful approach. Absolutely. Can I ask, and you touched on this a bit before, so how much of the variability in our immune system is down to the genetics or even the epigenetics as opposed to environmental factors? 
Yeah, that's a, a great question. I, w- I wouldn't say we have a complete answer. It's still an ongoing area of, of research by ourselves and many others. Um, the things that we see consistently impact variability in immune responses are obviously genetics, age, sex. CMV is quite a strong impact, but a sort of more narrow effect. It affects really T-cell responses and NKs, whereas age, sex, and genetics are really widespread. Genetics, probably less widespread than age of sex, but when you do have a genetic effect, it's quite strong. So if you have a single nucleotide polymorphism and has an association with a, an immune response like a cytokine, it can usually account for up to 10% of variability between any two individuals. And 10% mightn't sound like a lot, but within a biological experimental system, it is it is pretty high. Other lifestyle factors are things like smoking, I mentioned BMI, diet, they obviously have an effect, but in terms of trying to quantify them, they're, they're a bit lower than those other factors like age, sex, and genetics. And epigenetics is, is a really interesting one because it, it's obviously having a big effect. It's a bit more challenging to get at. Um, the techniques now are becoming more mature to do that. But where I think it's really interesting is to try and tie these environmental lifestyle effects through epigenetics into immune variability. Um, and we see a lot of epigenetic changes with age that are probably reflecting environmental effects with age. So the challenge is now to disentangle all of these and really understand from a mechanistic point of view how they're all, how they're all working. Darry, you've gathered so much information. You've processed so many samples. I'm wondering what kind of outcomes you've had so far in, in terms of translational medicine. Yeah, you've touched on a big challenge because, you know, studying healthy immune responses, we're not studying that just for the sake of it, to understand health. It's, it's really to give a better understanding for disease. So in terms of the applications to the clinic, you know, it's still ongoing. It's still an active area of research. So we've run a lot of parallel studies in infection in in autoimmunity, kind of using the same approach and then going back and comparing to our our, our, um, healthy population. So one of the first areas we, we worked in was in TB and tuberculosis, where there's still an urgent need for a a reliable blood-based test of active infection. So the reason we focused on TB is because there is a whole blood approach used in TB called the quantiferin test. And it might work for us if, if we were suddenly showing clinical symptoms of, of TB, we would be considered quantiferin positive. But in, in, in endemic countries for TB like South Africa, where we do a lot of our studies, everyone tests positive with this quantiferin-based test. So it's of no use. And, and we hypothesize that the approach we've been doing would give a better diagnostic. And, and that's exactly the study that we did. And, and, and that's the result that we got, that just by improving on the, the cytokine readout and, and improving on the stimulation, that we could get a cleaner signal of the disease setting. So that's kind of one sort of basic example that, that might lead to a, a better test for, for TB. There's a lot of challenges in getting there in terms of the, the clinical deployment of that. Another finding that's come just purely from the Interior Consortium was a collaboration led by Antoine Toubert, who's a researcher here in Paris. And, and Antoine's been studying thymic function and, and using a thing called TREC, which is T-cell excision circles, which is basically circular junk DNA that is a result of the selection of T-cells through the thymus. And, and it just gives you a way of measuring by a simple PCR on the blood how the, the, the thymic age of that individual. So... By applying this assay of Antoine's to our cohort of a thousand donors, we could quantify how the thymus declines with age over the, the age range of our cohort. We could see a very strong sex effect. So women had older thymic age than men. And we identified a novel genetic polymorphism 
in the TCR alpha locus that was associated with this thymic function. And, and if you combine those three simple things, so age, sex, which every doctor has that information, plus a single polymorphism, which you can now measure with a, you know, a 30 minute point of care based test, it explains something like 50% of the variability in T cell age from one individual to another. So that for me is really powerful. The challenge now is to identify the clinical application and, and that's where we're still working. But we think there could be a lot of relevance for this and things like transplantation in things like infection. So there are some reports that there's a relevance for, the, for, for this particular marker in COVID. So that's the challenge now is to really bring this new understanding of what's impacting healthy immune variability and how a better understanding of it, how we can apply that to the clinic. So it's still really ongoing, but I'm hopeful over you know, the, the next few years, that's, that's what our research is going to deliver on. So this individual variation impacts diagnostic testing, like you were saying. It helps us understand things like the thymic function with age and will hopefully translate to knowledge about susceptibility to infection. Do you envision this inter-individual variability having a role in vaccine responses? Absolutely. Um, I, th- I think it impacts on, you know, anything that relies on immune responses. So so we know that there's sex differences in vaccines. In, in general, women have higher antibody levels to vaccination than men. Um, we know there's strong age effects. So we, you know, routinely and annually, you know, recommend vaccination for elderly populations. And, and we see differences in, in pediatric vaccinations as well. The challenge for vaccines is, you know, the sort of public health model of vaccines is that everyone wants the same vaccine for everyone because it's just easier. But I do think we will move towards a, not quite precision medicine, but at least, you know, stratified population-based medicine. Um, there is already now a a specific influenza vaccine that's adapted for elderly. It's basically a larger antigen dose to induce a stronger response. So that's sort of the crudest way that you can think about it. But, you know, if we think about the the, the pathways that are targeted by these vaccines in terms of the innate response, um, we could think about better guiding those for either men versus women or older or younger individuals. Um, we could adapt the antigen in terms of whether that individual has previously been exposed to that pathogen or not. I think there's huge potential there. And, you know, vaccine research was a bit of a, not a very exciting or hot topic prior to COVID. Uh, COVID has, you know, changed that as another thing that has really changed. So, for me, that's a good thing. It, it is a lot of interest and a lot of renewal and excitement in the vaccine field. A large reasons due to the success of the mRNA vaccines and the, the adaptability they give, but also our understanding from our work and many others in this field, I think it's really going to translate into more specific tailored vaccine programs. And finally, Dara, you have so many collaborations ongoing with so many different labs around the world and different institutes. What are you most excited about over the next few years coming down the line from your lab? A few things that we should really be looking out for. Great question. There's there's so much ongoing. It's hard to pick, you know, one or two things. But I guess following on from from that last question, really translating this better understanding of immune variability to really try and push that into new clinical tools. So vaccine responses is one. So we've got some ongoing industrial collaborations to really push this understanding of of immune variability, both in systemic, but also in mucosal immunity. We're really not exploiting um, our understanding of mucosal immunity for vaccinations. And that's, I think, especially for respiratory infections that we really, really need to push that. The other is in in drug responses. So we touched on steroids, um, you know, trying to understand why some people don't respond to steroids and and can we predict. And, And the goal there is, you know, to identify who would be 
better served with more tailored immune therapies. It's it's not really so that you go into a clinic and told, well, you can have steroids or not. It's to really better improve clinical study design for the development of new drugs because it's so expensive and takes so long that we could really improve on that. And, th- and then for, you know, better use of the, the current drugs that are, are been widely used. So the drugs such as cancer immunotherapy, checkpoint immunotherapy inhibitors, I, I know you've talked about on some previous podcasts, really powerful new approach in terms of um, combating cancer and, and, and really translate into greater efficacy. But they also come with huge side effects. And, and this isn't talked about enough. You know, up to 60, 70% of cancer patients that are given these checkpoint inhibitors will develop some kind of autoimmune-like reaction because we're removing the the inhibitors on their on their immune cells. And and we have studies and, and, and strategies that we think can better understand that. And and then we could go to more tailored approaches, de-risk some of those so that the patients are getting just the benefits and less of the side effects. Because it's the two sides of immune variability, if you like. If you change something, you have a positive effect, but there's always a negative effect. And, and understanding the immune variability will hopefully give us the better tools to be able to balance that and, and ultimately lead to better solutions for, for patients. Dr. Dara Duffy, the Director of Research at the Institute Pasteur in Paris, thank you so much for joining us on the show. Thank you both. It was great. That, as always, was just absolutely fantastic. Dara is a mine of information. One of the things I took from what Dara was saying was that the way things are moving is towards personalized medicine. And it seems that the personalization of medicine is really what we need to think about and focus on. It, it's going to be the treatment for so many diseases going forward. I mean, what Dara talked about there, about the idea of assessing if someone had an interferonopathy or problem-producing interferon, and then responding specifically by replacing that is so elegant and targeted I feel like the more we can do this personalized medicine, the more we can maybe diminish side effects from drugs. Absolutely, Lara. And our mums were right. We're all unique and special. And I agree with Dara in that it might be harder with things like public health and not being able to give the same vaccines or other things to everyone indiscriminately. But I think it's the way forward. I remember going to one of my first immunology conferences and the keynote speaker was saying how each individual should be thought of as their own unique disease state. And that's really stuck with me and helped me, I think. That's really interesting. It's it's just fascinating how many different fields, not just immunology, but neurology, gastroenterology, all of these are just moving towards this concept of personalized medicine. I suppose we all really need to be thinking like that. The, the big issue is obviously going to be funding. You personalize things, it means you can't make them quite as general or generic and they cost a lot more. That's the problem. With great power comes great responsibility. (laughs) (laughs) That's exactly it. So listen, that brings our episode to a close. And I can only imagine that comes with another wonderful joke from your fine self. So go ahead, lay it on me. Okay, I've gone with something fresh and topical as always. So why do the French only use one egg to make an omelette? I don't don't know, Bianca, why do they? Because one egg is enough. Oh, God. (laughs) Every month you get better and better, or worse and worse, I'm not sure, but every month you you definitely become something anyway. (laughs) Well, as long as my jokes aren't interfering with the science, I'll keep on going. That one was unforgivable. (laughs) 
Okay, someone needs to send help. Right, I think you've all heard enough from us for this month. So if you want to get in touch with us with comments or questions about the show, please email us at immunoteapodcast at gmail.com. That's immunotea, spelled I-M-M-U-N-O-T-E-A podcast at gmail.com. Or you can tweet us at immunotea. Don't forget that's T-E-A. We'd like to thank our guest today, Dr. Dara Duffy, our executive producer, Professor Niall Conlon, and our editor, Aidan McKelvey. And thanks so much to you for listening. We'll chat to you again next month. Goodbye for now.